Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 84 with Rick Hayfley on the entomology of fly fishing. Um, I just love to start by getting uh, a background on all my guests. So um, I did read your bio online, but I'd love to get kind of a, uh, like, how'd you get here? Um, how'd you get into fly fishing and, and where have you moved along the way to get to where you're at now? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, well, um, I grew up in Illinois in a little farm town, um, a town called Piatone, which is <laughs> nobody, pretty much nobody's heard of, but uh, it was halfway between Kankakee and Joliet. So if you've watched the Blues Brothers, you know where Joliet is. Joliet Jake and all that good stuff. So it's in the flatland of Illinois with corn and soybeans everywhere. Um, kind of a great place to grow up as a kid. It's a small town, a lot of freedom to play around, which is, uh, I think, helpful uh, in my developing interest in fishing as a kid. Uh, it was the kind of place where you could ride your bike out to a little stream or a little uh, bluegill pond and and do whatever you wanted to do to try and catch fish any way you could. Um, so I, I had a lot of freedom, a lot of fun growing up there. Um, I actually got started fly fishing at a fairly early age, uh, probably around 11 years old. Uh, a uh, An uncle who lived in Missouri, we'd uh, occasionally go to vacation down there. He he was a fly, uh, fishing kind of crazed kind of guy and fished with every kind of gear you could think of, including fly fishing. So he put a fly rod in my hand and, and basically said, you know, you won't catch any fish unless the fly's in the water. 
because my fly was up in the trees a lot, of course. <laughs> but um, but he is one who kind of gave me that uh, very first start, and for whatever reason, it took. And I guess growing up as a kid, I was always one of those kind of guys running around looking at bugs and sticking them in jars and. And we had, uh, you know, little creeks around that we'd go to and had a lot of fun. So it was just a combination of uh, having a chance to play outside and uh, in an environment that uh, was like that. And uh, one, of the, one of the cool things that um, really got me interested in entomology at a young age, uh, when I was a teenager, I guess, um, was uh, we had a lot of lightning bugs in in illinois and if you've grown up out there you know what that's like and they're pretty cool but uh one of the things crazy things we did as kids is we had certain cars that you could put on a railroad track and there were little railroads around that only ran a couple of trains a day and at night when we were teenagers we go put a car on the rails and you'd let like half the air out of the tires and the car would just go down the railroad tracks and you'd put it in drive and you wouldn't steer or anything. You'd be sitting on the hood. You wouldn't even be in the car. And you'd go down through the cornfields out in the country in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. Um, and there were uh, places where there were just millions of lightning bugs. I mean, it was, there were so many, you probably could have read a book. It, it was pretty spectacular. I've never and heard of this uh, train track riding thing. Um, <laughs> riding the riding the rails. I, you know, I don't think you could get away with it nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it sounds sketchy, <laughs> but uh, did you ever get in, yourselves into a, a pickle doing that, or did it always work out? <laughs> you know, fortunately, it always worked out. You'd put your car on the rails at a little rail crossing out in the country on a gravel road, and you knew that, you know, 10 miles down, there was another crossing where you'd take your car off. And uh, you had to have a car just the perfect width that would fit on top <laughs> the rails. And uh, I have to say, so this is in the 60s, like around 1966. So long time, long time ago. It, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> and um, it was one of the goofy things you do out in the country as a kid, I guess. Yeah. But um, it, it uh, ended up being quite an interesting entomological uh experience with the lightning <laughs> bugs. <laughs> I have to say I like that you call them lightning bugs. I feel like there's lightning bug people and firefly people and I grew up a lightning bug person, so I'm I'm happy to hear another one. <laughs> <laughs> They've always been lightning bugs where I grew up. <laughs> so did your um like love of entomology uh spring up separately from fly fishing and then they kind of started to feed off each other? Or did they kind of um grow up grow into you together? You know, I think there was a lot of it growing together. Uh, I I think it was being out on uh, water fishing that sort of introduced the idea that there are bugs in the in the lakes and streams, and exposed me to that idea. I was fishing a little farm pond once in the evening, right at near duck dusk, and there was a hatch of um, hexagenia, and I had no clue what they were—the big mayfly—and it was like there were thousands that just came off all at once. And it was like the whole surface of the lake just went up into the sky. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, you have got to be kidding. What is going on here? And and so I had some experiences like that that just really um, I thought were amazing. And there was a, a TV show on at that time that really got me enthused about fly fishing. 
And I've talked to some other people my age who watched it, but if you're at all younger, you wouldn't have heard of it probably. It was called Gad About Gaddis. And this guy was the flying fisherman. It was the way it was presented on TV. And it was on Sunday afternoon after we'd get home from church. And I would never want to miss this show. It was Gad About Gaddis, the flying fisherman. And he'd go fly fishing all over the country. He'd fly fish for striped bass on the East Coast. He'd be fly fishing for cutthroat trout on the Platte River in Colorado. And uh, it was just this cool show. And so that kind of got me really excited about going back out West and seeing some of the rivers in the West. Um, We never traveled as a kid. We never did vacations into the Rockies or West of the Rockies. So I was a real naive kid when it came to what it was like out here. But it got me excited about it. And uh, when I got time, graduated from high school, I wanted to get into biology, fisheries biology. And so I went to school, uh, undergraduate school in Bellingham, which was a great, great place to go. Um, very different than Illinois. And so that's what brought you out west? Yes. Yeah. Brought me out west was to go to college and uh, went to Bellingham. And I was, you know, very much into fly fishing at that point already. So there were just all kinds of streams and and steelhead fishing and salmon fishing and a lot of trout fishing to explore around uh, the North Cascades in in near Bellingham. So it was pretty awesome. And now did you get your degree in fisheries biology or did you um, switch and get it in entomology with um, like a, a minor in fisheries? Yeah. So my undergraduate degree at Bellingham was just in general biology. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and then... Um, it was pretty interesting. So my senior year, um, the the head of the biology department had gotten his PhD studying stoneflies at uh, Oregon State University. And when I was a senior, he offered an aquatic entomology class, which I was really excited about. And I had already taken general entomology from this guy at that point. But I was the only student that signed up for it. Uh, this aquatic entomology class, and he went ahead and taught taught it. Which so I just got together with this uh, Jerry Kraft was his name, and just a great professor. And we'd get together in his office every week and talk about aquatic insects. It was pretty neat. Um, and so he really helped kind of mentor me and kind of focusing on how to get into grad school at Oregon State. And that's where I decided to to focus on aquatic entomology, aquatic insects. I, I worked uh, part-time in Bellingham during the summer or full-time during the summer, summer jobs for the fisheries department. Uh, and so I got a good taste of kind of some fisheries biology work and kind of decided I'd probably get bored with fisheries biology in a 30 plus year career. And I knew that insects, you could never figure it all out. And there's way too many of them to ever understand everything. So uh, I decided to go in the direction of insects instead of fish. Th- that's kind of uh, funny. I think I think most people would assume they'd go the other way. They'd say, you know, I can get a- never get enough of fish, but bugs, you know, I can only pay attention so long before I just zone out. But yeah. it's it's fun that you kind of <laughs> went the other direction, and we're like, there's the the uh, possibilities are endless in the insect world. <laughs> exactly. You know, out west, um, a healthy stream in the west might have ten fish species in it total where if you if you are a fish biologist in the midwest or east coast they might have 200 species of fish 
So in terms of just the ecology and the diversity, um, everything's focused on salmon, trout, and steelhead mm-hmm. in the West. I mean, that's if you're a fish biologist, that's what you end up doing 99% of the time, which is great. You know, that's cool. But um, I just love the diversity of insects. I mean, it was just so fascinating. And what have you done since then? Like, what, what has your uh, job entailed as an entomologist? Yeah. Um, so right out of grad school, I, I uh, got connected with a consulting company that was doing uh, permitting for big corp- big companies, mostly mining companies that would have to get permits to develop a mine. And it involved a lot of uh, stream uh, assessment work. And so I got, uh, it was a great job. I worked up in Alaska, flying into wilderness areas and collecting aquatic insects and doing water quality, water chemistry kind of sampling. Uh, A lot of fisheries work too. I did a lot of uh, helicopter uh, spawning surveys uh, from helicopters. It was was just a pretty uh, interesting job to kind of fall into right out of grad school. And, And then in the recession in the early 80s, that company went out of business. And so I was laid off. And that's when I got uh, my job with the Department of Environmental Quality, uh, the state uh, in Oregon State Agency. And I was um, one of the lead people there developing the whole bioassessment program for water quality assessments. Um, And I, I landed, again, at a really good time when EPA was starting to really fund a lot of state pro trying to fund state programs and more bio biological assessment rather than just chemical assessment mm-hmm. for uh, pollution studies. So there was a lot of interest in developing that type of work. And uh, that's what I did a lot of at DEQ uh, was develop the methods, sampling methods, the analysis techniques and stuff for using aquatic insects, aquatic invertebrates, not just insects, but snails, worms, all of the invertebrates to evaluate water pollution problems. And that's what most of my career was focused on. So does that just involve looking at, um, you know, different species that indicate good water quality? Is it just number of species? Um, or do you take into account, you know, these species generally indicate good water quality and, you know, these are these are desirable species to have present in a, in a watershed? Like what is what goes into a biological assessment like that? Yeah, you're looking at the overall community structure of the invertebrates. So, um, there's quite a bit known about which species are sensitive to different kinds of pollutants. Uh, some like heavy metals, mayflies are extremely sensitive to heavy metals. Others might be sensitive to uh, herbicides. And in general, uh, the kinds of insects we focus on for fly fishing, you know, the big three mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies, they tend to fall into the, some of the more sensitive uh, species. Uh, they're called the EPT which is the uh, ephemeroptera, plecoptera, and tricoptera. So um, they're always looked at as kind of the, the indicators of a healthy stream, if you have a lot of VPT out there. Uh, and then as things get more stressed, either from a warmer temperature, uh, pollutants from nutrients or metals from mining, uh, you see those numbers of species decline in abundance, and you see species that are tolerant uh, increase in abundance. And so you're looking at the ratio of, of those different sensitive to tolerant species. EPTs take me back to undergrad. I remember that from a stream ecology class I took. Uh, and that's, that's right. something that has like uh, cemented itself in my mind. I think I heard it enough times that uh, EPTs <laughs> takes me right back. 
where did you take that? Uh, uh, Allegheny College uh, in Northwestern oh, Pennsylvania. Back. Yeah. Okay. A lot of work's been done back there um, in Pennsylvania on stream ecology. It's a, a big topic back there. Yeah. When I was there, they were doing um, brook trout streams and trying to survey which which of these tiny streams that were generally flowing, um, you know, through someone's private land surveying those streams to see uh, whether brook trout were present because that was the the species um, of choice for that area um, but that was a that was a lot of fun electro fishing and and all those things so that's definitely where I got my first taste of entomology um, although I didn't I didn't pursue it like you did but um, yeah I, I did enjoy that class a lot oh yeah that sounds awesome so how how has um entomology kind of because it sounds like your job was not necessarily directly focused on fishing quality or anything like that with rivers, but I'm sure that you've taken a lot from uh, your work with entomology and applied it to your own life. So kind of more on the fishing side, how have you um, found a way to kind of incorporate that and, and use it to your advantage when you're fishing? Um, I, I, <laughs> that's a great, I, I don't know how often it's been an advantage to my fishing okay. <laughs> <laughs> as far as success goes. Uh, I like to think it has. Um, I fished with uh, I've fished with many great fishermen that didn't know much about insects and they've caught a lot of fish. <laughs> um, so I, uh, but on the other hand, um, it makes it a whole heck of a lot more interesting because fly fishing for trout is so connected to the insects and the food that they're eating uh, and the patterns that you use that it just makes it a whole lot more interesting. I think to know some of the basics about aquatic insects. And for me personally, um, going to a stream is as much about seeing the, the puzzle and the mystery of what the insects are doing and how that uh, reflects to how the fish are feeding. Uh, to me, that's sort of the juice that uh, I find exciting about fly fishing is, is that connection between what the fish are feeding on, the insect life that's there for them to feed on. And what the behavior of the insect is at that day. And you can go out and put on a woolly bugger or a uh, Chernobyl ant and catch trout. Right. But to me, um, the real excitement is going deeper and looking at really the behavior of the fish related to the behavior of the insects and connecting those. So is it fair to assume yeah. that you're uh, an observer when you get to a river? Are you flipping rocks and um, you know looking all at the- spider webs and all, all that jazz of getting a, a full picture of, of where you're fishing before you actually tie anything on and start? Oh, yeah. Out, outhouses are a great place <laughs> to look at spider webs. <laughs> the first stop of the day is sometimes is the outhouse. Check out the spider webs. <laughs> but anywhere along the stream uh, is, you know, I always tell people you see the little foam and stuff at the eddies on the edge of the river or the lake and, you know, it looks like a bunch of crud and, you know, kind of, kind of, slimy goop. Well, really look closely at it and you've got all kinds of aquatic insect exoskeletons or shucks that have been emerging in that stuff. It'll tell you what insects have been hatching, what kind of fly patterns you might want to put on. There's all sorts of clues out there. And and it's just fun, I think, to to pay attention to those clues. It's just kind of neat, you know. I have to wonder, as as someone who's um, you know, more professionally trained in this world, 
how uh, how specific are you when you're looking at these things? Are you saying, oh, that's a such and such species? I have the perfect fly, you know, that I've tied up just for that. Or are you are you still when you go fishing, kind of more of a general, um, you know, I'm just looking for the size and shape and color of these things and trying to you know roughly match it with a pattern. Like how how detailed does your mind go when you are looking in the film and and seeing what's there? Yeah, so it, it's at two levels. One is when I see you know, what it is, I go, holy cow, that's a Swalia. <laughs> I, I haven't seen one of those in a year and a half. You know, holy cow, that's really cool. So I like to look at the insects at a pretty defined, refined level. But when I put on the fly, I fish very impressionistic flies. Okay. Uh, I, I, I try if, and it, it, it really depends on where you're fishing. I mean, if you're in a stream that's not very productive, like I, I floated the middle fork of the Salmon River, a great example pristine wilderness uh, stream. Uh, it's very unproductive. Uh, the water is not high in nutrients. Uh, it's a granitic uh, geology, which doesn't produce a lot of uh, uh, phosphorus and, and nitrogen in the, in the water. So it's not a productive system. Those trout are not selective. They have to eat anything that comes along because there's not a lot of food out there. Um, and so when you fish the middle fork of the salmon, you put on a, a small terrestrial pattern, a hopper, you know, an ant or something like that. You fish it all day long and you catch fish all day long. The fish have to take it that they just they're they're looking up for anything they can find to eat. You go to another stream like, say, the Deschutes in Oregon or, say, uh, the Snake River in my or in Idaho or, you know, any of those really productive streams. Those fish get very selective. And, and you're fishing, uh, you know, Silver Creek in Idaho is a great, I mean, it has got so many insects, so much bug life. Those fish get ultra selective. And there, you really have to pay attention. You don't need to know the scientific name of what they're eating, but you need to know if it's uh, a little blue-winged olive mayfly or if it's that size uh, 22 midge. And you need to match a fly pattern very closely to it to have success. And you might have to have the right emerger pattern, you know, where you've got the right little floating mm -hmm. nymph in the film, not just the dry fly, but you might have to have that floating nymph in the film uh, to really be successful. Um, so it, it varies a lot with the system you're fishing and the kind of productivity and, and, and uh, production of the system. I don't know if you'll know this, but I, I, I get what you are, are saying when you say that, you know, if this unproductive river, the fish need to take what they can get because they're only going to get so much food. But in the in the productive rivers where they have a wide variety, what makes them be selective? Why wouldn't you still just say, "Hey, I want to, you know, I want to eat as much food as I can and fatten up," and uh, doesn't matter. I just am, you know, happy. I have a variety, maybe in plentiful food. But why the need to be selective? Why not still just eat everything that comes past if it's all edible and you know you're a trout and you can eat bugs? Yeah, well, that's a great question, and I'm, I don't know that I have the, the answer. The theory that makes sense to me is called uh, when there's a lot of things around to feed on, you can waste energy making a decision. Um, you know, is that food? Is that food? Is that food? And, and whereas if you develop a search image for one mm, particular okay. thing that at that moment is extremely abundant, Right. It changes day to day, hour to hour. So it doesn't mean you're locked into this for, you know, long periods of time. But for that moment in time, there's a certain food item that is um, in greater abundance than most other things. 
and you develop a search image for it, you're much more efficient in just zeroing in on that search image. Got it. And going for it. Yeah, this color brown at this size, I've I've established that that's food and it's good. So you know, if I if I see anything in my periphery that matches that, I'll take that. I don't have to think about anything else. It's just okay. Exactly. Exactly. It just makes you wonder, though, all the you know interesting things that trout do that you can you can speculate, but at the end of the day, like there's just no real way to really know what's going on in their heads. (laughs) Well, well, let's think of here's an analogy. Let's say someone threw out in a floor in a room. Uh, a thousand dimes and a hundred quarters. And your job is to pick up as much money in a short period of time as you can. Well, if there's a thousand dimes, you want to focus on the dimes. You don't want to go searching for a few of those quarters. Right. You want to pick up every dime you see. And if you get a good search image, you're going to be a lot faster. Man, picking up every dime you see. And, um, you know, you don't have to think about even paying attention to the quarters. Yeah, I think I've heard like a similar analogy. If you know, if you're sitting on a conveyor belt and, and burgers are coming by and you're eating the burgers and you know you like them, and then a salad comes by, you're like, I could probably eat this, but I know I can eat the burgers, and I know that a bunch more are yeah. coming, so I'm just gonna <laughs> like not risk it with this salad, and I'll just wait for the burgers to come past. Um, exactly. But exactly. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just in my mind, fish are just our feeding machines, so you know they would just take any opportunity to eat, you know, whatever came past. Yeah, I know. Um... There's been a lot. I've done a lot of uh, trout stomach uh, studies myself where you, you know, kind of uh, through fisheries departments, I've been working with them, looking at fish stomachs. And um, it's interesting because you'll get a fish. Usually the fish, when you clean it and really start looking at stomachs carefully, there's not a lot of variety in the stomach. Um, It's usually one or two things that are dominating. And it, it just seems like that's what was dominant in the water column when they were feeding. Um, but then you go to the next fish and it will be on, might be different things, but it'll still be focused on a few items, not a lot of variety. Uh, so it's, yeah. So for two fish from the same time and area, you might find two kind of different feeding patterns or do they tend to kind of line you, up with each other? Um, I, I would say if they're in real close proximity, it's going to be very similar. But if you go, hundred yards downstream, it might be ah, different. Okay. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to pivot a little bit into um, some of the major groups that people might be familiar with and, and kind of, you know, what they're like, what, what their life cycles are and, and how they fit into the uh, world of f- fish and their diet. So um, I know you mentioned the big three. I think you could maybe add on their chironomids if we're talking about uh, fishing. Yeah. And of course, everything else that's kind of in its own category. Um, but I'd love to hear kind of about those big groups and, um, you know, how they cycle through their lives, uh, the different stages and how they relate to fly fishing. Um, and you're welcome to start wherever you want, but I just love to kind of hear an overview of those. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to start with mayflies for a couple of reasons. Uh, if you look at the history of fly fishing literature, uh, mayflies, in my mind, stand out as being talked about maybe more than just about any other group. Um, and I, I think there's a logical reason for that. Um, if, if you were a fish and you wanted to design an insect that was easy to feed on, you'd come up with something like a mayfly. Um, it, it, everything about their life cycle uh, makes it easy for trout to see them and eat them. Um, the, the, lar- the nymphs, um, of course, most of their life cycle, the nymphs are on the bottom of the stream and not hugely available. But then there's 
a whole group of, of mayflies called swimmers where the nymphs are readily available in the nymphal stage. Uh, but when they're mature and ready to go, they got to swim up to the surface. They swim through the water column and they like coming up and it's a fat uh, piece of morsel of food that a trout doesn't have any trouble seeing and eating. Then they hit the surface film and it takes them a while to pop out. And then they float on the surface and then they go up and then they come back to lay their eggs and they die on the surface. So their whole life cycle has multiple opportunities for trout to feed on them and see them easily. Uh, and you have a rich um, a diversity of species uh, that live across the wide range of stream types. Uh, lakes have a much sparser community of mayflies, but they're still out there. Uh, so you've got a wide variety. And the mayfly species tend to be dominated in cold water systems, right? You don't find as many mayflies in warm water streams. So they, they prefer the same habitat conditions that trout prefer. So um, if you've got a good, healthy system for trout, you've got a good, healthy system for mayflies uh, in just about every case. Uh, so um, I, I think the mayfly life cycle is just perfectly suited uh, to feed trout. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they're easy to, for fly fishermen to see. They pop up on the surface and you go, wow, look, there it is. You know? And then they land there to lay their eggs and there they are again. So they're easy for fishermen to see, and it's obvious the trout are feeding on them. So uh, I think just the history and everything about their life cycle is, I think, to me, they're like the, the, the main uh, kind of uh, bug of interest to fly fishermen for hundreds of years. Uh, it's been kind of interesting. And so what is their life cycle? Uh, most of them are one year long. And uh, for, say, 11 months of that year, they're uh, in the underwater stage as an aquatic nymph, uh, mostly feeding on algal material, plant material, diatoms. Um, and as an insect, they had to grow, they have to molt. So they, each time they get a little bigger, they molt. They molt 20 to 30 times. Um, once they're mature, um, they are the nymphal stage is going to swim up towards the surface film. The exoskeleton of the nymph splits open and the first wing stage, which anglers call the, the done stage, pops out on the surface of the water. That stage flies off, lands on the foliage. And in about 12 to 24 hours, it molts one more time into the reproductive stage. The done is not fully re reproductive yet. Uh, it's uh, reproductive organs aren't fully developed. So it molts into the spinner. Spinners mate in the air. Um, the females after mating just fall to the water and start laying eggs. Um, and the wing stages, the dun stage lives maybe a day or two and the spinner stage can live as short as an hour or as long as another day or two. So the whole wing stage lasts maybe three or four or five days. Uh, most of the time, it's just one or two days. So the duns of the day are not the same spinners that are falling that evening. They're, it's it's delayed by a day or two? Yes. Okay. That's right. I didn't know that's that. That's right. Um, and the other fascinating thing is, so mayflies are a very ancient group. There's fossil records that uh, basically are the proto-mayfly that go back 300 million years. Uh, so they've been around forever. They were landing, you know, 60 million years ago, 
the same mayflies we see today were landing on dinosaurs. Wow. I always think that's great. You know, if this mayfly lands on you, you go, you know, that guy's ancestor landed <laughs> on a on a Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know. I wonder how many great, 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 great whatevers would be in that uh, family tree. I think we're talking a 10 to a power. Uh, probably 60 million <laughs> yeah. years. They've got a, a one-year life cycle, so you can just figure it out. It's 60 million years of life cycles. <laughs> um, but uh, when they molt, when they emerge in the surface to the dun, they lose their mouth parts. So they can't feed at all when they get wings. They have no mouth. They can't take water in. So they're not going to live very long. Um, and so um, that's one reason they have a very short adult lifespan is they don't have any way of eating or drinking. Um, and that's a very primitive trait, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and molting, they're the only insect group that molts when they have wings. Uh, mayflies molt from the dun to the spinner. There's no other insect group that molts when it has wings. I guess I didn't uh, know I knew that, but come to think of it, I mean, you don't hear about dun and spinner caddisflies. You know, dun and spinner is very much like a mayfly uh, terminology. So uh, even though I, I couldn't have told you that um, I knew that, you know, caddisflies or stoneflies didn't do that, I feel like I inherently uh, knew that, that that terminology was kind of uh, attached to mayflies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the technical name for the dun is the subimago. Imago means adult. And so they're the subadult stage, and then the spinner is the imago stage, which is the true adult. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, so they're they're really interesting that way. Um, stoneflies are interesting. Um, their life cycle is a little more variable in terms of length. Uh, the big famous stoneflies, like salmonflies and golden stones, they take three to four years as a nymph to grow to full size. Most of your other stoneflies, the nymphal life stage, again, is roughly a year long. And then the adults uh, live maybe a couple of weeks, 10 days to two weeks is kind of a normal time for adult stoneflies to live. Uh, And they, of course, have functional mouth parts and they can take water in and they don't munch down on much as an adult. They might get some nectar off of flowers or stuff. Um, but uh, that length of the nymphal stage can be quite long for some species. Uh, and there's very, very few stoneflies that live in lakes. There, there are some, uh, but there, there, uh, it's a very few number of species that live in lakes. So they're really um, pretty much restricted to moving water and also water that's quite cold. Okay. Um, and again, there are species that do pretty well in warmer water, but the, the majority of species prefer cold water. They need, uh, they have very uh, poorly developed gill system on a lot of stonefly nymphs. So they have to be in water that has uh, high oxygen content. And cold water holds more oxygen than warm water. So again, it kind of focuses their area on cold water streams. And in pollution studies, stoneflies will often be some of the first species to disappear. So if they have a, if they have mouth parts as an adult, um, but they're not they're not doing a lot of feeding, what are they doing for that week or two that they're uh, just flying around? You know, and mayflies seem yeah. like they have a very you know they've got a targeted goal. They're going to mate and they're going to die. And stoneflies, it sounds like they're just kind of wandering around doing whatever for a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, they are. Okay. They're just kind of, they, they don't molt again. They kind of just fly around. And I, I you know, it's a good question. I, I know like uh, 
you know, dragonflies, the females will molt, well, they'll mate more than once. I don't know if that's true for stonefly females. I think they only mate with, you know, one male and then they'll start laying eggs. But, it, you know, it may take a while because especially for the bigger ones, for those eggs to uh, complete development in the body before they're ready for mating. I see. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's probably some of that going on too. Um, and, um, oh, the other cool thing about mate, uh, stonefly adults though, um, is that a lot of people don't know this, but the males and females drum to attract each other. Um, they have special plates on the underside of the end of their abdomen for drumming on the vegetation. They'll drum on the twigs on the trees and it sends the vibrations through the, the, the wood. And then they pick up those vibrations with their antenna and the males have one very specific drum beat and the females reply with a different drum beat and every species is different. And so there's a whole, I've got a whole, um, DVD on uh, acoustic communication of stoneflies by this uh, professor down in Texas who studied it for decades. And he's recorded all these different stonefly drumming uh, sounds on acoustic material that you could actually pick up on a recorder. And oh, pick. wow. And it's, it's amazing to listen to all these stoneflies drumming. And so when you're sitting on a stream bank and there's stoneflies on the trees, just know that there's this drum fest going on all around you. <laughs> wow, so, so this isn't like something uh, you'd hear, like a cricket chirping. This is something that's um, just being felt in the vibrations of the of the twigs that they're on? Yes, that's okay. right. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't hear it, or maybe fortunately, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, the guy that studied it actually put him on material that was resonant enough you could pick up the sound itself and recorded it. Oh, that's so cool. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Oh, it's it's amazing. It's really amazing. Yeah. And as a drummer myself, I always kind of find that kind of cool. I did see the drums yeah. behind you. I was wondering if those were yours or uh, a child's. Or... Yeah. Yeah. I started playing drums when I was like 10 years old too. So drums and I do the same thing now that I did when I was 10. I collect insects, I go fishing, and I play drums. <laughs> well, there's worse things that's, to do with your life, for sure. <laughs> that's probably much, that's all, that's my life story is right there. It's all I've ever done. <laughs> so uh, uh, tell me about caddisflies, um, unless, unless there's more uh, fun facts you have for stoneflies, which um, happy to soak those up if you've got more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, caddisflies, they're, they're the most diverse group. There's more species of caddisflies than all the mayflies, stoneflies put together. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so they're, they're wide, really diverse. And there's a wide range of species that live in lakes as well as streams. And there's actually some species that are terrestrial. Most people don't realize that. But there are some caddis species that are terrestrial. And they live in real wet environments. I was down in Costa Rica in the tropics. And I'm looking around, of course, love to look at insects in the tropics, right? Um, and I see this caddisfly walking on a log up on the, you know, up in the forest. And I'm going, holy cow, it's a caddisfly. It's a terrestrial caddisfly. That was really cool. And it had a case and everything, just like a aquatic. Oh, one. really? Do they it still was... build the same, like, gravelly? Oh. Yeah, it was made out of wood, oh, okay. you know, little bits of, of leaf and wood material. But yeah, I made a case and it was walking around wow. with a case. So are those, <laughs> yeah. are those species um, still important for 
trout or do they like not do that much with the water? Like would they, would they kind of live separate lives? They live separately huh. from the water. Yeah. So the diversity of caddisflies is quite broad in the kind of habitat that they uh, can live in. Um, and there, there's a, a lot of diversity in their sensitivity to water quality too. So even in streams that uh, start to, you know, really get on the edge of quality for trout, um, you know, there, there's this interesting kind of challenge in terms of protecting streams and stream quality and stuff. Um, sometimes streams in their most natural state is not the most productive state. Um, and as humans come in and start interacting with the landscape, we generally, for a variety of reasons, increase the nutrients coming in, either through soil erosion or direct application of fertilizers. So in a lot of cases, we've bumped up the productivity of streams through our uh, human activities to where maybe there's even higher trout populations than there would have been naturally. Um, but it's a slippery slope. You can quickly go past that improvement to a real serious decline. Um, and that's, of course, the problem where you have more and more people and more and more human activity and bigger problems. Well, caddisflies will be one of those groups that really become more abundant as you kind of change the conditions from maybe more um, perfect conditions for stoneflies and mayflies to less desirable, but still really quite healthy for fish. Um, and you'll see a lot of real productive streams have big caddis hatches. And so throughout trout fishing, pretty much across the country, um, my guess is if you went back 200 years before Europeans were prevalent uh, in, or maybe 500 years, um, there wouldn't be as uh, abundance of caddis that we have today. They'd still be a good diversity and there'd be lots of them, but it wouldn't be as abundant. Uh, that's just a wild guess. But at, at any rate, caddis now are often extremely abundant and one of the more dominant foods out there for fish to, to feed on. I do feel like caddis yeah. flies are often the, um, the thickest hatches I see. You know, sometimes it happens yeah. with mayflies too, not so much with stoneflies, but I feel like when you hit a caddis hatch on the right day, it feels like you're almost like trapped in a cloud of them. Um, exactly. Where if you feel a little claustrophobic, like there's too many bugs around me right now. I, maybe you don't, maybe you don't get that feeling as an entomologist, but. Oh no, uh, you know, um, the Deschutes River in Oregon, I don't know how many of your viewers would know about the Deschutes. It's a pretty well-known stream in Oregon and other, you know, in North America. But at any rate, um, 20 years ago, the caddis hatches were epic. Um, and you know, the theory, the, the joke was that when you're cooking dinner and you had your camp lantern going, you know, which the caddis are attracted to the light, you'd be eating as many caddis, you know, in your <laughs> spaghetti sauce as you would be anything else. And, and it's true. I mean, at the, in the morning you'd have piles of dead caddis around your lantern. I mean, inches thick of dead caddis. Um, unfortunately today, because they've had some issues with how the dams are operated, uh, that have really changed the, the, the river, uh, that's not happening. And so I've been really involved in some, you know, trying to get some water quality changes, uh, in the river, but 
But yes, caddis can be overwhelmingly abundant, like you say, a little claustrophobic. Even. And they love to it's land crazy. on you too. I feel like when there's a caddis hatch, I feel creepy crawlies all over me because they just want to land on your legs and crawl and, you know, they're just getting everywhere. <laughs> do, you, do you ever get one in your ear? Oh, I'm sure I have. I, I don't remember a specific time, but. Yeah, 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 they kind of, they, they kind of, <laughs> yeah, they're everywhere. Um but the caddisflies have a one-year life cycle primarily. There's some species with a shorter life cycle. And there's some mayflies and stoneflies, too, that have a life cycle that's less than a year. And you'll get multiple hatches of the same species in one year. Um, but uh, the caddis, in general, are going to have a one-year life cycle. And uh, the thing with caddis that's totally different than mayflies or stoneflies, they have a pupa stage. So they have complete metamorphosis where they have to go like a caterpillar going through a chrysalis before it becomes a butterfly. Um, that's what caddisflies have to do. They have to go through that pupa stage. Mayflies and stoneflies don't have that okay. uh, stage to go through. And so that's a big difference in behavior and a big difference in fly patterns because you're going to want caddis pupa patterns. And caddis pupa swim really well. Uh, they come up from the stream bottom where they develop. They cut out of a little shelter when the pupa is mature and then they swim up as a pupa to the surface and then the exoskeleton of the pupa splits open and the adult, the caddis flies away. But that pupa swims up very fast. And so fishing techniques tend to be real different uh, when a caddis hatches on than say when a mayfly hatches on. Uh, mayflies, it's always drag free. You want that nice natural drift with no unusual motion. Uh, no drag. With caddis, you know, it's, uh, who was it? Leonard M. Wright wrote the book, uh, uh, The Sudden Inch, or Fishing a, a Caddis Pattern with a Little Inch uh, Twitch to It. And, uh, well, Fishing is a Living uh, Insect. That's what it was. Leonard M. Wright, Fishing is a Living Insect. And it was all about fishing caddis with little twitches and stuff. And, um, and fishing uh, pupa patterns, you can, you know, use a lysen ring lift and other methods to swing it and get it to come kind of scooting up towards the surface kind of with some induced uh, behave activity and behavior to look uh, natural. Got it. Now, what, what differentiates a pupa from, let's say, like a mayfly nymph? Um, I know it obviously the mayfly, you said, doesn't have that same ability to swim strongly. It is more kind of going with the current. But physically like what differentiates uh, a pupa from just like a, a a nymph stage of any other insect so um you could think of the pupa stage as the final instar of a mayfly nymph so an instar refers to each time it molts it's uh you know if it's got 30 molts it means it has 30 instars and the final instar is the last molt before it becomes uh, a winged insect so that final instar of a mayfly nymph would be when the wing pads are fully developed. You can see the wing pads on the back of the nymph. All the adult features of the uh, mayfly done are inside that last nymphal instar. So if you open it up with a pair of forceps and a, and a scalpel, you could you know, dissect out that... Uh, Dunsage, it would be in there. Well, that doesn't happen with a caddis larva. The caddis larva doesn't develop any of those adult features. It doesn't develop wing pads. It doesn't develop any of the long antennae. It just stays like the larva uh, would look. 
all of those adult characteristics come about during the pupil stage. And so um, what that allows one thing to happen is that the larva can inhabit very different kinds of habitats and then it can crawl out to a different area to pupate and then pop up as an adult. Uh, so the larvae become a little bit more specialized uh, in what they, how they feed and uh, maybe the habitat they live in because they don't have to worry about trying to also fit into an adult shape. All they have shape they have to do is be a larva shape. They don't have to fit into an adult shape. Right. So like a mayfly is, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're not thinking about it so logically, but they're, they have to live in a way that when they're ready to become an adult, that, that that's still suitable for being an adult because it's going to happen so quickly. They're going to need to just rise up and become yeah. one. Whereas a, a caddis can kind of live its life as a, as a, an immature insect. And then right. when it's ready, it can be like, now it's time to transition to this next stage of my life. And we're, we're leaving this behind. Yep. We're becoming something new. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. what happens then when yeah. they, so when they come to the surface, um, what's, what's the next stage there? Yeah. So it's the winged adult caddis fly pops out, flies off and they go all land on the stream side foliage and they mayflies mate in the air. Mayflies have the mating swarms up in the air. You can see them, the little dancing mayflies, stonefly adults mate on the foliage. And then the females fly back to lay their eggs and caddis also mate on the foliage. And then the females return to lay their eggs. And one of the neat things with a lot of caddis, um, especially the species that trout fishermen often encounter, the females don't just land on the surface and release the eggs and the eggs sink. The females actually dive under the water and swim to the bottom. And then they grab a rock on the bottom of the stream, lay their eggs, and then they come floating back up to the surface. And when they're underwater, they're enclosed in a little bubble of air. They're like in a little glass diving ball. And, and the females, if you look at a male caddis and a female caddis, the hind legs on a female caddis are real broad for swimming. Where if you look at the male legs, they're just real skinny sticks because they don't have to swim. And so the females are designed for swimming underwater. Wow. So I don't, I don't know if I've ever fished a pattern that mimics this, but is this something that uh, anglers really target, the stage of them diving underneath? I've, I've seen um, some caddis patterns that do appear to have some sort of, um, I don't know if I'd call it a bubble, but it looks kind of like that. But I've always assumed that that was more of a pupil stage that I was looking at. But may, now I'm wondering if maybe these things are meant to mimic some sort of air pocket. So Gary LaFontaine in the book Caddis Flies that he wrote back in the mid-80s, he has a whole bunch of information on the diving adult caddis, and he has patterns for diving adults. And I had this epiphany uh, not that long ago. I get asked all the time, why does a prince nymph work so well? And I think it's because they look like a diving adult caddis. Really? Yep. That, those, those white-colored biots that go over the back of a prince nymph, I think it looks like the, the, the white... Uh, really sparkly uh, conditions of the air bubbles that are on a diving adult caddis because they really sparkle and they're almost shining yeah. underneath the water. I, I think a prince nymph, this is total theory on my part, but I, I think a prince nymph works partly because it's looking like a diving adult caddis. Wow. I've always, I've always associated with a prince nymph with being a, a stonefly pattern, but 
I do feel like it works better than other patterns I consider stonefly patterns. And my guess has always just been it looks perfectly buggy. Like if you were to if you were to design yeah. um, a nymph, I feel like if, if you told a child to draw a nymph and they knew what they were going for, it would kind of come out looking like a prince nymph, like very, very generally that. But um, yeah. that's interesting. I, I'll have to try one next time I'm, I'm there uh, with some caddis coming off and, and see what happens. Yeah. Well, see, I always have the problem of trying to associate a fly pattern with an insect behavior. And it's probably total BS, but... <laughs> it gives you something to do. <laughs> it gives me something to do. <laughs> do you, do you, um, do you, I know you said you fish like more impressionistic patterns, but I definitely go to certain impressionistic patterns with the idea that it, you know, it, I think it looks like a this. And so I'm going to fish it as that. And there's like a confidence to it where... Um, you know, Absolutely. I think a hare's ear is a caddis pattern and I know some people think it's all kinds of other things, but it's in my caddis box. Uh, do you, right. do you, uh, think that much about those patterns that are a little bit more vague where you have a, you see it and you're like, that's a such and such, and I'm going to fish it so confidently when that insect's coming off. But if it's not, I, I don't, I kind of shy away from it because, you know, in my mind it's, it's one thing. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. When I say impressionistic, I don't mean that I fish it for any kind of, you know, bright, wide range of insects. I guess what I mean is that I don't try to tie a pattern that has six legs, okay. <laughs> the exact number of tails, two antenna. You know, I, I don't try to tie those that are great, awesome patterns for fly tying displays, but I don't think they fish that well. Uh, I, I like patterns that, uh, are going to be the right size. I think size, if the fish are selective, I think size is critical. Critical. If they're in a size 18 and you're using a 16, you're not going to catch as many fish. So I want something that's the right size. I want something that's the right silhouette. If it's a, a skinny swimming mayfly, I don't want to use a real fat nymph. I want to use a little slender nymph or a, a chronomid pattern. You know, they're all real skinny because the naturals are skinny and slender. Um, and then color. Um, I, I have a real um, hang up on color in the sense that I don't think it's that important. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, fly tires go nuts about color. I mean, you know, if you're, when I'm doing fly tying demonstrations, there's always somebody in the group will say, now, what dubbing did you use for that? Was it uh, hairline number 382 or was it hairline number 445? You know, I go, I have no clue and I don't really care. You know, if the bug is olive, I'll use some sort of general olive color, and it might even be tan, and I don't really care. Uh, I want it to be the right size, the right silhouette, and I want to fish it with the right behavior. Um, and if I collect, if I collect a hundred blue-winged olive nymphs on the same rock, I'll guarantee you there'll be five shades of colors among those hundred nymphs. And so, does the fish have uh, a preference for one color or another? Well, we all know that sometimes changing color makes a difference in the fish you catch. You know, like somebody will swear that that day they were taking yellow and they just hammered the fish on something yellow or, or purple or, or bright green, whatever it was. But um, in general, I don't think color's all that critical. I uh, I have to agree with you on the the fly tying part. I'm not an experienced tire, but uh, I do I do tie. And my the book I follow when I'm when I'm looking for patterns does give like the the specific color that you need. And I'm like, 
it's brown. Like I'll just pick a brown or I'll pick a green. It's like brown, exactly. green, black, white. Like it's it's a very simple color palette for me. Um which is good. Yeah. It it seems like I would get frustrated trying to be a little too specific with the color. Yeah. Well, and it does matter some days like, you know, you can be out say um fishing woolly buggers and you put on a black woolly bugger which is great and you fish it and you're not doing too well and you put on uh, a purple woolly bugger and all of a sudden boom, you know, you're really catching fish. So there's no question color is a factor in, in what the fish might be preferring. But when it comes to matching hatches, it's kind of lower down the ladder that I want to pay attention to. Well, I think for woolly buggers, the difference is that it's imitating something larger, like a bait fish or, you know, a black one would be a leech, whereas a green one would be something yeah. completely different. Like we're talking about two completely different animals there that they yeah. might be feeding on, whereas you know, a light green versus a dark green, the BWOs that day are likely, so they're, they're on a spectrum. Um, and it's not, yes. it's not indicating a different animal. It's just uh, a slight natural variation. Yes, that's a great way of putting it. So you mentioned coronamids. Um, I'd like to hear about that too, is kind of an, another group. I know it's not one of the big three, but it's, you know, arguably just as important, if not more important, um, I feel like for a lot of trout uh, in, in certain waterways, at least. Well, and as streams become more stressed and less less favorable for mayflies and stoneflies, there's going to be more coronamids around. Um, coronamids are truly uh, hugely diverse. I mean, there's thousands of species of coronamids, and so and they live in every water type you can imagine. If you see water anywhere, whether it's a a puddle in your driveway or a pristine trout stream, there's, there's going to be coronamids in it. Um, so uh, they're everywhere. And they're one of the most dominant foods trout eat. Any trout study, stomach study that I've read, all the ones I've done, um, the big three in trout stomachs uh, in just about any study is coronamids are usually number one in terms of just overall mm -hmm. abundance in the stomachs. Uh, chronomids are number one, blue winged olive, uh, nymphs are right up there. Number two, and then, uh, number three might be a caddis, certain caddis larva, like a net spinning caddis larva, something like that. Hydropsychids. Uh, but chronomids and blue winged olives are almost always number one and two. I didn't realize it'd be so specific to, to BWOs versus just yeah. like midges, then mayflies, then whatever. Like to hear that it's that specific mayflies. Is really cool. BWOs are incredibly important uh, for your fishing and for trout food. Uh, the, the nymphs are extremely mobile. And so even when they're not emerging or uh, they're very active and they drift, there's this whole aspect of insect ecology on stream drift and when insects drift and what species drift more than other insect species. And chronomids and blue-winged olives are big drifters. And because um, trout tend to feed in what's drifting in the water column, uh, they see those groups a lot. And uh, the other reason blue-winged olives are so prevalent is that uh, blue-winged olives are kind of like the red-tailed hawk of mayflies. Uh, you know, if you're out there looking for raptors, you know you're going to see a red-tailed hawk. They're everywhere. And if you aren't sure what it is, it's, well, it's a red it's tail. It's probably a red tail. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, blue-winged olives are like everywhere. They're in every trout stream you've ever fished. There's blue-winged olives. I would get, I almost guarantee it. And, and they're probably abundant. What, what a level on the like 
taxonomical scale is BWO? Is that a family? Is that a genus? Like what, what level are we talking about? How, how many, are there lots of species within that group? Yes, there are. And, and that's a great question because most of the common names that anglers use don't apply to a single species. They apply to a group of species. The blue-winged olive is a pretty large group. Uh, really, it's uh, applicable to the family level, uh, the family Betidae. The majority of ones that you run into are going to be in the genus Betis, uh, or Betis, you can say it either way. Um, but there are other genera as well that are quite common. Uh, the one that hatches in the fall that's really small, like a size 20 blue-winged olive, is in a genus called Acentrella. Uh, there's other real common gen genus called Difetter. Um, and there's, yeah, there's a number of others. And um, so it's kind of the family level that the common name applies to okay. more than anything. Yeah. So I got a sidetrack here on BWOs, but um, back to midges. What uh, what's a, a midge's life cycle like, and then what you know? How does it go about its life? Yeah, it's often very short. Um, they go through the life cycle like a caddis, so they have a larval stage, pupa, and then the adult. So they have a pupa stage, which is what we imitate most of the time when we're fishing coronamids is the pupa stage. Um, and a lot of times these life cycles are completed within four to six weeks instead of a, instead of a year, uh, in the summertime, when the waters are warmer, they can crank through a couple of generations in the summer. Um, and then they'll have another generation or two during the winter. And there's going to be chronomid hatches every month of the year, every week of the year, there's going to be chronomids emerging, uh, just because there's so many different species and they, um, uh, they've adapted to so many different conditions. Um, the larvae live on the, on the lake or the stream bottom. And there's uh, the other thing that chronomids have adapted to is very low oxygen levels. So in lakes, they do well in very deep water, below the thermocline, down there where there's not much oxygen, not much sunlight. They can feed on bacteria and fungus in the substrate and the mud um, rather than more actively growing plant material. And uh, they can survive down there in very low oxygen. And so a lot of the chronomid fishing in lakes takes place in 20, 30 feet of water. Um, and that's one of the few insects that's down there. There's not many other insects down there. You mentioned uh, that they, they can hatch all year long, which I knew about them. And I also have, I feel like of all the other flies I can think of um, that I might use in the winter, BWOs also come to mind as something that may be hatching basically any month of the year, depending on where you are. Uh, is that another reason maybe that those are kind of the top two is they're available all year long. So they're kind of what we talked about earlier, where if you know that this food source is good, then you're going to keep keying in on that. And if you know that, that food source is available year round, then you might be more likely to kind of add that to your favorites and, and feed on it a lot. Absolutely. And, and the BWOs, besides having a variety of species that have slightly different timing to their hatches, they go through two or three generations a year as well. So it doesn't take them a whole year. Usually you get say the same species, say Betis tricaudatus, which is very common, hatches in, you know, February and March, and then it hatches again in late June and July, and then it hatches again in late September and October. So that one species will hatch three times during the season. And then you have other species overlapping with that. Uh, uh, so yes, blue-winged olives are around a lot. 
the the last group that I know might be a little bit difficult to really consider a single group would be terrestrials. Like that's the last thing I think of as kind of a major group. Um, that that of course is very you know varied uh, from ants yeah. to beetles to grasshoppers. Um, if you had to give kind of like a thirty thousand foot view, since we don't have time to go through every single one, um, it just kind of like how not necessarily the life cycles, but how terrestrials fit into uh, like a trout's diet. Um, does that yeah. does that vary a lot around the country um, or t- time of year? I know they're kind of a summer thing usually. Yeah, it's going to vary with time of year. Um, and a part of my thesis that I did for my master's is I put out, uh, I did a lot of stomach samples on trout. And I also had all kinds of insect sampling I was doing at the same time, including floating traps that would collect whatever's falling in. And this was on a coastal stream in Oregon. And the coastal streams aren't overly productive like some places, other places would be with aquatic insects, but they still had a good, healthy population. Um, and I was looking at um, steelhead juveniles, cutthroat, and coho uh, juveniles. And, and cutthroat and coho tend to live in slower water, more pool habitat in the small coastal streams. And they were, in the summer, eating 80% terrestrial food. The steelhead juveniles that stayed in faster water, they never really focused heavily on terrestrials. They, ate some, they certainly ate it, but it wasn't the dominant part of their diet. So if you look at what kind of trout you might be fishing for, brown trout versus rainbow versus cutthroat, you know, uh, if the, those that spend a little more time in slower water are going to focus more on terrestrial food, um, uh, white fish, you know, focus almost entirely on nymphs and larvae that are underwater. Um, so it varies a little bit with fish species. Um, but in the summertime, terrestrials are really important, really important. I assume they would be kind of a big meaty meal, like hard to pass up, you know, a full meal in a single bite versus having to eat a thousand midges, you know. Yeah, they are. And it's like the salmon, uh, middle fork, the salmon, uh, too, where it's not productive in stream. They really depend on terrestrial insects to to get enough food. I mean, it's really a critical part of their diet. Um, And ants, you know, I I would never go fishing without ants in my fly box. Ants are just such a good thing to fish Um, from spring through fall. You know, they can be periods of time when ants are just going to outfish anything. Else. I have had ants save my day more than once where it seems to be the only thing that works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I can. I, I don't yeah. often see trout feeding on ants, but it might just be because they're so small that I'm not noticing them. Um, whereas yeah. if you see a hopper hit the water, you're going to watch it, you know, as far as you can see it and see if something comes and, and grabs it. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and hoppers are fun to fish and, you know, hopper, <laughs> hopper dropper is a great technique. So, you know, it's, it's a logical thing to do for sure uh, in the summertime, especially, but ants are just something you should have, you know, with you when you go out just in sure. case. <laughs> so I have to um, finish up on like one final question, just to wrap it up. If you had to, if you had to pick one uh, nymph and one dry fly to, you know, if you could only carry these two flies for the rest of your life and nothing else what would you choose it kind of considering maybe you know which ones do a good job of imitating a lot of things very well well keep in mind that we're talking about trout fishing here yes trout specifically yeah um i i would i would probably have for a nymph 
Can I pick two nymphs? All right, sure. <laughs> I, I usually I usually fish two nymphs at the same time. Okay, we'll give it if they're at the same time. We'll we'll give them both. We'll give you both of them. And, and that would be a green rockworm larva pattern uh, about a size fourteen, and then a size eighteen blue winged olive nymph. Okay. Those those two fish together. If I could just fish nothing but those two, I'd be a happy camper. Um, and then for dry fly, oh, that's a tough one. You know, we just talked about ants. That would be a seductive one to pick. Hard to see, though, sometimes. But I don't know which ants you fish, but my ants that I fish are usually really hard to see. Mine are pretty small, 18s, 16s, 18s, the kind of normal size. Uh, it would be a small fly. It wouldn't be a big okay. one. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick a chubby Chernobyl. No way. Yeah, I agree with that. I would agree with that, yeah. <laughs> In the summer, though, I might. I think I could get away with one from June to August. I, I could fish nothing but like a, a chubby or a, a hopper of some sort. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I would probably pick um, a small mayfly pattern, like a size 18 blueing olive. So you're, you're really leaning yeah. heavily on the BWO. Yeah, that's most of your rig. Yeah, I am. I know. Um, well, as the thing is, you you know, a little blueing olive could also look like, um, you know, depending on how you tweak the wings, it could be a little spinner pattern. You can make it look. And I, I really like the harrop done as far as the style of mayfly pattern I fish. Um, yeah, I, I would probably go with a size 16 or an 18, uh, blueing olive for a dry, dry fly. I might have to fish yeah. the, uh, the Rick Hayfley special sometime and, and rig this up as a, a dry double dropper. If, if the dry is big there enough to hold them both, but, uh, try that and see how it works. <laughs> You'll need the chubby Chernobyl for the hold them up. <laughs> I do a lot of dry dropper fishing. I end up fishing a lot of large dries because of it. Cause I, I just, yeah. I don't love indicator nymphing i will when when it really calls for it but if i can get away with a dry fly on top i'm going to do it but it leads me to fishing a lot of big stuff so if they're eating small flies you know it, it doesn't always yeah. do that well for me have you is euro nymphing uh, becoming popular out there where you're at in colorado it is yeah. i haven't i haven't tried it yet but it's it's definitely um pretty common out here yeah, it's very becoming very common out here. The guides have really gravitated to it in a lot of places, and uh, it can be very effective. Have you done it, um, or are you in? Are you in? Yeah, I do it. I I have the outfit. I've I've actually gone out with a fellow that's kind of a I don't know call him expert, but very good at it to learn more about uh, the technique at, and. Uh, there's quite a bit to you know, like anything like that, the honing the the skill to really kind of fine tune it. There is quite a bit to it. Uh, I don't enjoy it uh, personally as much because it's not fly casting. Yeah. And and I do like fly casting a lot. And so you kind of eliminate a big chunk of what makes fly fishing fly fishing. Yeah, I could. I I think it'd be fun to learn, and I think it would be fun to you know, be able to fish through a run that's already been fished and pull out a couple extra trout that, you know, weren't, weren't playing ball with the, with the previous angler, uh, which is something yeah. I hear about a lot with your own nymphing. But I, I do think I'd, I would never be able to commit to that. Um, just because I like, I like watching a dry fly drift. Um, I like participating yeah. in a hatch and, uh, it's, I think I'd get bored without, without the casting and the, um, dry fly drifts. Yeah. 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 It's, I'm kind of in the same boat. Yeah. So. It's a very effective technique. There's some concern that has been raised by people that it's too effective, that um, if you're going to go through a run and you're going to catch, you know, 50% of the fish that are in that run, and if even if you're using, they're all barbless hooks and you're letting them all go, well, even if you have 
1% mortality, you know, you've killed uh, or stressed quite a few fish in that run because you're just so darn effective. And if everybody starts doing that, if, if it becomes real popular and you get a dozen people going through that run, you're really, really impacting the fish more than you would with traditional gear. And, you know, that's a point. That's a good point. Well, hopefully there's yeah, still enough can... people out there that are uh, wanting to vary up their techniques to, to keep it yeah, a balanced I, I, amount. I think, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Humans have a tendency, a tendency to love things to death. So yeah. hopefully your Olympic <laughs> won't, won't go too far. <laughs> well, just to wrap up, um, uh, tell, tell me where people can find you if they want to come to your website. And you've also got quite a few books out. Um, I don't know if anything's recent, but, but feel free to plug any of your older books as well. Um, yeah, the most recent stuff I have is on the website. It's also on Amazon. It's just Rick Hayfley's favorite fly patterns. And you can just go, my website is rickhayfley.com. Uh, of course, nobody can spell my last name, but that's okay. I'll link to it so um, people can just click the link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just rickhayfley.com. And the things I have available, uh, some of the older stuff and more recent stuff's all on there, which you can buy directly from me. Uh, or if you want it signed, you know, my email's on my website. You can email me and we'll get it to you. Uh, or they're happy to just go on Amazon. Most everything that's available is on Amazon too, and they can order it directly from Amazon. Uh, so I'd say my website's the, the place to go. I still do quite a few programs for fly fishing clubs, uh, and those are listed on my website and how to get in touch with me. I've been doing Zoom talks through COVID, which I'm still happy to do. And for you know traveling farther distances, I really like the idea of doing it by Zoom because don't have to waste the energy to go by plane and and all of that but uh anyway uh i'm still doing uh, programs and enjoy that and so happy uh, to offer that to folks um but i'm not working on any new books right now okay and are most of your yeah. books like hatch related yeah um yep most of them are hatch related uh, and you know methods i have the nymph fishing books nymph fishing rivers and streams which is focused on nymph fishing uh, so more technique, but all of my books have a, quite a bit of bug info in. Okay, it. yeah, I think it makes sense for for that to be yeah. the case. <laughs> well, Rick, uh, this yeah. was super fun. Uh, I loved I love these like little tidbits about the the bugs we use all the time and don't. You know, I think a lot of people don't know much beyond this bug looks like this and therefore I put that fly on. And it's fun to kind of get a little bit of the backstory on on these insects that we feel so connected to, but don't don't often take the time to to learn more about them. There's, there's a lot of great mystery out there. The world's an awesome place. And I think the more you look at it closely, the more enjoyment you get out of it. So Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to go uh, look up, a, uh, see if I can find some sounds of the, uh, the stonefly drumming and, and see if I can there find you it online. Go. It'll, it'll be online. <laughs> it'll be online. Check it out. Sounds good. Well, I will let you get going uh, to enjoy your evening, okay. but I really appreciate you taking the time for this. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for contacting me. It's a pleasure. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, Don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.